Scripture and open to page 1784 in the Pew Bible. Working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 34 of chapter 11. There's a website called the Daily Infographic, which posts lists. And I found a list of the world's most expensive meals this week. And I want to share them with you so that we can go out and share an expensive meal together. So we have to travel to Tokyo first. And in Tokyo, you can buy a bowl of ramen. You know those ramen noodles you buy for like six for a dollar? Well, in Tokyo, you can get one of those for $110. At the Capital Dog Restaurant in Sacramento, California, you can eat the world's most expensive hot dog for $145.99. In Scotland, you can order a bottle of -of end-of-the-world beer. It's served with the bottle inside a taxidermied squirrel carcass. And it only will cost you $800 a bottle. In the Westin Hotel in New York City, you can buy a bagel, a truffle bagel, mind you, that sells for $1,000. At $2,000 a slice, you can have a piece of Britain's Wagyu beef pie. And in Italy... You can enjoy a Louis XIII pizza loaded with lobster, caviar, eight different types of cheese, and seasoned with hand-picked pink Australian river salt. And that pizza will cost you a mere $12,000. The simple bread and juice, the meal before you, represents the most expensive meal in history. The Lord's Supper. Its cost, the life of God's own Son. Look with me at verses 17 and following as Paul shows his outrage and how they're treating this most expensive meal. He writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For what I receive from the Lord. Well, let's pause there. 
Imagine if you took your family to that Italian restaurant in Italy and purchased that $12,000 pizza. Think of the seriousness with which you would eat that as a family. You just gave the waiter $12,000 and the pizza comes. How would you feel if, if your family just casually ate that pizza? How would you feel if, if your children started picking off those things that they didn't like and making those little piles on the plate? How would you feel if, if your son just wolfed down three really quickly and was full and ready to go? How would you feel? You would feel as if they were making a mockery of the investment that you just made. That they were not realizing how much it cost. The huge sacrifice it was for them to eat that pizza. That only begins to get at the iceberg tip of what it's like when we come to the Lord's Supper in what he's later going to be called an unworthy manner. It only begins to help us understand Paul's reaction to how the Corinthians are celebrating this communion together. They're making a mockery of it. They're approaching it all wrong. They have an improper approach to the Lord's Supper. 2,000 years ago, believers celebrated the Lord's Supper a little differently than we do today. It was in the context of what they called an agape feast, an agape meal, a love meal. They would get together and eat a meal of which bread and wine would be part of that. And at some point in that meal, the Lord's sacrifice would be remembered. They would break the bread and they would drink the cup and remember Christ and his sacrifice And Paul has heard from some in Chloe's household, chapter 1, he has heard that there are widespread abuses going on at these agape love feasts, that they're making a mockery of the meaning of communion to the extent that he says, you know what, you're not even celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore. You might think you are, but what you're doing and how you're doing it is not even remotely close to what the Lord intended. We see this issue in verses 20 and 21 when he says, When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper you eat? For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. And then he says, Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? And then he goes on to talk about what they're showing is actually disdain for the Lord's Supper. What was basically happening was they were importing their pagan, idolatrous temple feasts, that type of behavior, into the church. There were socioeconomic divisions associated with eating at the temples of Aphrodite and Apollos in Corinth. Wealth and status ruled. It dictated first who ate first, the order of eating. In some cases, it indicated what they ate 
the more wealthy ate different things than those who had less. And that same behavior was going on in the church of Corinth. They were dividing off into their their socioeconomic groups, their clusters. They were eating at different times. The wealthy were were eating first and and the the less well-to-do were eating last. And sometimes they didn't have a chance to eat anything because all the food was eaten. Some brought extravagant food while others ate very little. Basically, there was a clear and overt distinction being made within the church of Corinth between the haves and the have-nots. To the point, in verse 22, he says, you're actually humiliating the have-nots. Imagine if I, before we took the Lord's Supper, looked out and said, uh, Laura, uh, Joan, Ed, uh, let's see, Megan, Ken, um, and Carrie, will you please uh, just go downstairs and wait till the rest of us eat, then you can come up. A distinction is being made. A hard line is being drawn. They were also not just importing their socioeconomic divisions, but they were importing also from their temple feasts the gluttonous behavior that went on at those. You get the feeling while reading this that the people were overindulging in food and drink and at some point even taking the wine to the point of getting drunk. See, in the very activity, the very activity that is supposed to show our unity, that is supposed to show that we are different from the world, they had imported their pagan practices. The very place where the gospel should show our commonality, our equality, our unity, our love, division was reigning. So he writes, I have absolutely no praise for you in this. You see, the gospel requires a complete break from the world. That's something that the gospel requires as you believe and trust in Christ. The Lord's Supper is not a pagan ritual. Paul says, if you're looking to fill your stomach, if you're looking to get, get your, your, your hunger pains, pangs satisfied, this is not the place to do it. That is not the focus of this meal. It's easy today because we don't have a meal. We have a little piece of bread. You're not expecting that. But in the context of an agape love feast where food was coming, people brought food, think of a potluck with the table full and it's 6 p.m. and you haven't eaten since 11. You're hungry. And Paul says, this is not the place where hunger should rule. Physical hunger. The Lord's Supper is to be a place where you're spiritually nourished. You're spiritually fed. Many today go to uh, the Gospel Coalition conferences and together for the gospel, and and uh, that's where they go to 
to get spiritually nourished. Actually, this is where we go to get spiritually nourished. Right here. This is why Christ instituted this. Communion time is a time to be filled spiritually, filled with the Spirit. In the previous chapter, Paul even references participating in Christ's body. There's this mysterious spiritual participation that we're going to talk about in a minute. There's more going on here than simply a sticky note for us to remember Jesus' sacrifice. There's more going on here. So communion should show a break from not only their pagan practice, but more to the context. The Lord's Supper should display absolute equality within the body, a unity in Jesus. David Jackman, in his commentary, says, The cross spells the end of all human pride, all distinctions of wealth, education, birth, background, and any elitism. It spells the end of that. That's what Paul is teaching the church when he writes to the Colossians. Here there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. There's total equality. And and he writes that same thing to the Galatian church. Isn't that the root of what Paul's rebuke is even to Peter in Galatians? Peter, how can you, who know the gospel, pull away from the Gentiles? How can you treat them differently if they're brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul is incredulous that Peter would do that. See, the human heart naturally tends towards this marginalizing, towards this alienating, towards this dividing and separating. Those of you who are in high school probably see this acutely at this time. I know when I was in high school, there were cliques, right? I don't know what you call them today, but there were the jocks and there were the gearheads. And there were the freaks. We used to call them freaks. There were all these different clusters. And it was very acutely seen. And you knew where you stood. That's to have no place in the church and body of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we see Jesus displaying this level ground in his ministry, doesn't he? When the woman comes in when he's eating at the Pharisee's house, the Pharisees are aghast as she's wiping her tears with her hair. It's a a level ground at the foot of the cross. As he shows that that there's no difference between the Jew and the Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The ground is level. There's equality. The Pharisee and the tax collector, that parable, where the Pharisee 
is standing there looking up at the heavens and saying, I praise God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. That I give and tithe half of what I get. Look at me and my status. And the tax collector, if you know the parable, is standing at a distance. Do you remember what he's doing? He's beating his chest and saying, Forgive me, a sinner. That's the level ground at the foot of the cross. That's the level ground when we take communion. We are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. There's no, I'm a greater sinner or a lesser sinner. That's kind of how we approach it. I'm a lesser sinner than Blake or that person. We are all horrible sinners. It's one of the reasons he said, every time you get together, do this so you can remember your equality, your need. And that's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to represent. The obliteration of stature, of state, of status. Because we're all equally sinful. The Lord's Supper is the great display of parody. We all stand on equal footing at the foot of the cross because we're all sinners in deep need of a Savior. And that's the proper understanding that Paul wants to get us to in the next section. He says in verses 23 through 26, I want to give you a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. And so he says, For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Paul is rebooting the community aspect here. The commonality they should have. The communion they should have. Bringing them back to basics. Because right now, what they're doing, their actions were actually betraying Christ. I think that's why he puts it this way. Have you ever wondered why Paul describes that last night in the upper room as on the night that he was betrayed. Why didn't he say, on the last night Jesus was alive? Why didn't he say, on the night that he washed his disciples' feet? Why didn't he describe it in a different way? On the night he gave us that new command to love each other. That seems much more appropriate to this, right? Nobody said, On the night he was betrayed, 
He was, he was giving them a little flag here. You are betraying Christ the way you are administering the Lord's Supper. The night he was betrayed, Paul is saying, you too are betraying Christ because you don't understand what these elements represent. You don't understand what this bread is actually meaning. You're not getting it, what the blood is actually representing. If you're here today, and you're a believer, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what we're about to do here is, like I said just previously, this is spiritually nourishing. This is for you. This is encouraging you in your walk with Christ. And you should take this. But if you're here today and and you don't know Christ, you don't know, you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ's work and not your own, you're still trying to earn heaven on your own, being good enough, I really want to encourage you not to eat. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, eating in an unworthy manner. And it's serious. So I want you to take it seriously. Don't eat if you aren't serious about Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ. Because what this means is that when he was breaking the bread, he was saying to his disciples, you deserve this. You deserve your body to be broken. You deserve the punishment for your sin, but I'm going to take it for you. And I want you to see in a visible way the punishment that I am going to take on your behalf. Because Jesus came to save He came to save us from the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. And what what Jesus Christ did and what the gospel tells us is that God looked down on a world that was going to pay for their sin and his heart broke. And love compelled him to send the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, to be born. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God and man in human form. And he lived a life that you and I have really cannot live. And that is a perfect life. And James He says, you can live a perfect life, but if you make one slip up, you're guilty of the whole thing. So you want to make it to heaven? The truth is that you have to be perfect. You can't do that. And God knew that. And so he said, I'll go. I will live the perfect life. 
And the Gospels tell us that Jesus came, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet he said no. He resisted temptation and lived a perfect life. And he earned heaven. And he could have stopped right there and said, I'm going back. But he didn't. The reason he came is so that he could be a substitute for you and for me. And that's what the cross is all about. Jesus went to the cross. He was proclaimed guilty of something he didn't do. And he went to the cross and he allowed God, allowed himself to be tacked to a cross, to be beaten, to be mocked, and to eventually die a horribly painful death. That's his body broken for you, for me. That's what this means. If you eat this, it means I agree I deserve a penalty for my sin. I deserve death. If you eat this, you're saying I deserve death. But you're recognizing that you have a Savior that took that penalty for you. Let's eat together. Come forward, elders.